Sophia was a young Mexican mom in a miserable marriage. It was the 1960s, and women could easily get trapped in cycles of violence and poverty. My husband drank a lot. He beat me. I was physically abused, and I found refuge in the gospel. I wanted a better life. I got married very young, at 16. Through the gospel, my life changed. Not in every way. My husband was in the military, and I suffered a lot with the abuse. He beat me, and my children suffered because of it. Finding the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints changed Sophia's life in important ways. But it didn't magically solve all of life's problems. Most of us live in that messy middle place where hopes, ideals, and reality don't always match up. I'm Caroline Klein, and you're listening to This Global Latter-day Life. Sophia's story is only one of hundreds we've collected as part of Claremont Graduate University's oral history projects. Her story, like so many others in the collection, is poignant and powerful. The obstacles Sophia confronted, the meaning she found in her chosen faith community, and the ways she gained skills and capacities that helped her to confront her challenges and keep her family afloat in difficult times, these are powerful reminders of people's determination to shape their lives for the better. Today we're exploring the life stories of two Latter-day Saint women whose lives changed in big but practical ways when they joined the church, gaining literacy and other skills which enabled them to carve out new opportunities. We'll be delving more into the life story of Sofia from Veracruz, Mexico. We'll also be discussing the story of Marianne from Botswana, whose experiences with teaching and speaking in church have translated to leadership in her workplace. In order to maintain some measure of privacy for these women, we are not using their real names. We have given pseudonyms to them, and Sigrid Hernandez and Snay Bentley are reading the words or translations of the words spoken in the oral history interviews. Our thanks to Sigrid and Snay for their willingness to lend their voices to help tell these women's stories. Just to give you a very quick introduction to myself, I am the Assistant Director of the Center for Global Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University, and I am excited to be joined today by Melissa Inouye. Melissa will be here to give us some insight and perspective on the themes that arise from these oral histories. Melissa, welcome, and can you tell us a little about yourself? Thanks so much for having me. I am a senior lecturer in Asian Studies at the University of Auckland and a historian at the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I currently work at the Church History Library in Salt Lake City. Um, I'm interested in this topic kind of academically. I study global Christianity and women and religion, as well as the Latter-day Saint tradition itself. And then from a personal point of view, I'm interested because I'm a Latter-day Saint myself. And I'm really interested in this question of what does it mean to be a Latter-day Saint woman within this kind of global fellowship that is structured by these vertical hierarchies and also horizontal networks. 
Wonderful. Yeah, I'm also really excited about this topic because when I was doing oral histories with Latter-day Saint women in Mexico for my dissertation a few years ago, uh, one of the first themes that really emerged in so many women's interviews, particularly older women's interviews, was the role that the church played in helping women to acquire practical life skills that noticeably improved their lives. They attended church classes or they taught church classes and they just seemed to acquire this knowledge and these abilities that they didn't have before and that they would then sometimes entrepreneur into small businesses. And I was just really moved when I was doing these interviews in Mexico, particularly. I was really moved to hear them talk about how their membership in the church translated into better opportunities through these skills that they acquired and through the confidence that they gained from the work they did in their callings. It gave me a new vision of what the church's lay organization structure could do for people and the focus on self-reliance and how this can empower women to change their lives and their families' trajectories. And also, and as we're going to talk about with Sophia's story, church teachings can also give women a platform for critiquing husbands and encouraging them to be better partners and fathers. That was another powerful theme I saw in the oral histories in Mexico particularly. Marianne was born in a region that was being born again. It was the 1960s, and Botswana was transitioning out from under British colonial power to become its own independent state. It was an uncertain time, but in a lot of ways, Botswana was pretty lucky compared to other countries undergoing similar changes. It did not experience the kind of unrest and violence that arose in some other formerly colonized African countries, thanks in large part to the strong traditional structures which encouraged wealth and power sharing. That said, she did grow up in poverty. Marianne was the fifth child in her family, and resources were scarce, so she was sent to live with her grandmother. Those were unhappy years for her. My parents gave me to my grandmother because she was all alone. She was getting old, and she needed someone to help her. It was hard because you know how children are. We just feel like staying together as siblings. So I was feeling, why am I separated from these other children? Why am I staying alone? I am always alone. I have no one to play with. I have no one to talk to. It wasn't good for me. I remember when I was 15 years old, I went back to my mother. I just took myself back because I was feeling like I was lost. That was fine because by that time, my dad had passed away and my grandmother could be taken care of by my mother now. So I had so much fun having my siblings with me in the same place. While Marianne loved living with her siblings again, she never had the opportunity to attend school after the age of 14. Her parents said there was no money for it. Later, when she turned 21, she became a cleaner at the hospital, and she's been promoted to be a senior hospital orderly, which is like a nurse's aide. I enjoy my job, but the money we are paid here in Botswana is very little. But we are used to it. I do enjoy helping patients. I love the patients. This is what I wanted to do when I was growing up. I wanted to be a nurse or a doctor. But because of the situation of the life we were living at that time, I couldn't. Lack of education and money weren't her only challenges. Mary Ann's relationship with her common-law husband fell apart. In Botswana, it's very commonplace for a couple to cohabitate in a marriage-like relationship, have children, and then later get legally married. That's what Marianne expected with the father of her children. So when it didn't happen, she was devastated. I really wanted to be married. But he left me, and he went to another woman. 
before we even went to legalize it, he was taken by another woman. It was sad to me. I thought, how could this happen? I just wanted to have my own family and live the kind of life my mother lived, but it couldn't happen the way I wanted. It was a big challenge to me. I was thinking, how could I raise the children? It was so difficult that I left the children with my mother in the village to come and work here in a capital city. Because for me to work here, I had to rent a small room and stay there alone so I can get money to give to my parents to pay for my children so they can go to school. Marianne worked in the capital at the hospital and lived in that small rented room. She sent money back to her mother to pay for the schooling and care of her children. It's a pretty common arrangement for women in Botswana. Single women often rely on extended family to help raise children while earning money to support them. Marianne kept it going for about a year, and that's when she encountered the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and decided to join. I found the church when the first child was 14, and the second one was 12, and the little one was two years old. I decided then to go get them from my parents when I found the church because I felt that this was something that I wanted my children to come enjoy with me. And I stayed with them together in a small room. It was becoming good. I don't know what the Lord did to me. I couldn't even know or feel that pain that I had been feeling always about the kind of life I was living. I started being happy, always, seeing members of the church. That's when the children in church started calling me Mother Mary because I used to gather them together to come and join my children so they could help and become stronger in church. They would come to my room and stay together there and do family home evening, and I would cook for them, and they liked my food so much. Even the missionaries that came out, they would come to my house. They liked the food I cooked. It was so good. It was a good life. The best I had felt in my life ever since I was born. So that is what helped me to think, Okay, God can change your mind, even if you still lead that kind of life. You can manage, even if you have very little money. You can manage life and live. For all the benefits, she said, joining the church was still a really tough decision. My mother was so angry with me. She was thinking, you guys, here we are, Africans. We're not supposed to join these white people. Why? Why? This is the church of the white people. And so on. It was so difficult to me. So many words have been said to me. So many persecutions by my brothers and sisters. Because the church is staffed by local members who volunteer their time, it's no surprise that a convert like Marianne was put to work right away in the church's women's organization, the Relief Society. When I joined the Relief Society at that time, the problem was with me because I was not familiar with the things of the church, how to teach. Because when I was called... A second counselor, the president left the country. She went back to her country, Kenya. The first counselor was less active. It was so challenging. One day, I started going to the Relief Society stake president and told her my problem. And then she gave me so many manuals and she helped me to know how to do things. I started to enjoy Relief Society from then. And those were the only days that I remember where Relief Society was so tied together in doing homemaking and home enrichment. It was so good. Though these days, it's like people are kind of less active in Relief Society, not liking to go there. I feel different. I learned so many things in Relief Society meeting. How to speak, how to raise children, how to do things in your home, everything. Her work in Relief Society, and later her work as president of the local primary, the church's children's organization, helped her cultivate certain skills. 
These years of teaching, organizing, and preaching gave her opportunities to develop her abilities. She had to stretch, especially because in Botswana, Latter-day Saint church services are conducted in English, which isn't her native language. She barely knew any English when she became a member. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but imagine what it would be like to join a church and then to stand up in front of the congregation and try to pour your heart out in an unfamiliar language. I remember after joining the church, I was giving this talk, my first talk that I gave in the church. It was a difficult thing. How we take these teachings to our homes, how we apply them to our homes. I was thinking, sheesh, this is a difficult thing to do. And I gave the talk and it was so short, less than five minutes. Everyone was so touched. They were asking, are you, are you new in the church? I said, yes, I am. They said, I don't feel like you're new. There's something in you. What is interesting with the church also is that when giving talks or teaching, I remember that my education is so low. I joined the church when even my English was very poor. I used to pray and ask God, how can I? I don't want to miss this church. I want to be in this church. But my English, everything is English. What can I do? There's no Setswana in the church. What can I do? Because I want to be there. And then I started to see myself being able to speak. My tongue was very loose now to speak. Marianne also sharpened her management skills, and she has risen as a leader in her workplace. Now, I can tell you that people respect me at work. They think, this woman, can I please ask her what she thinks about this and how we can do this thing? They know we can wait for her to come and decide because we can't do it well. If she's not there to decide, they think that when I am there, things will go well. Like a lot of church members, Marianne's faith wasn't an isolated thing. It spread into other areas of her life. She said she felt divinely inspired to apply for that supervisory role at the hospital. Her inclination was to apply to be a driver for the hospital, but something told her to apply for that senior orderly position. It was just a feeling that these people wanted me to lead them as a supervisor. These people, they wanted me. Even now, wherever I go to work, because there's so many different wards in the hospital, wherever I go to work, these, those people do not want me to leave the ward because they feel that when this person is here supervising in the ward, everything is good. Even the leaders are fighting because they want me. Marianne feels like she really found her place, not only in her profession, but also in the church. As a Mormon woman, I lead a happy life knowing that my children are secure. I have a place where I can cry. I have a shoulder to cry on when I'm troubled, like when I'm still raising my last child. I know I have to cry on my Lord. And church members also help me. If I have this problem, Bishop can help me there. Stake president is there. He's there. So I can say that things are very good. So let's talk a little about Marianne's story. Now, one thing that jumped out at me was the role the lay organization of the church played in helping Marianne to acquire skills that she might not have otherwise acquired. She emerges as a leader at church and in the workplace, and a contributing factor to her professional rise is getting thrown into callings, and then she just had to figure it out and learn as she went along. Now, Melissa, you have seen Mormonism in action in various parts of the world. You've studied Mormonism all over the world. How have you seen the church structure and teachings help global people carve out better lives and develop practical skills that have really helped them? 
That's a great question. And I was really struck by Marianne's story, how, you know, she was like the sought after supervisor and people just wanted to work with her. And it's so true that within church practice, people just get so much opportunity and exposure to different roles, to different uh, leadership styles. You don't even have to be a leader. You can just see leaders and say, oh, that's a good leader or a bad leader, right? There's like all of this kind of modeling going on in the church, serving in callings, people pick up skills. You can think about public speaking, literacy from reading scriptures, leadership skills, like being able to read a room and say something that will bring that group of people together, management skills, like organizing work and delegating tasks. Um, another like big kind of skill generator is serving a mission where you learn a new language. Often uh, you stick to a schedule, you learn marketing skills, you get rejected and you develop psychological resilience. All of these things are really valuable life skills. It can also happen in formal ways. So for example, especially in developing countries, the church has very well-established self-reliance programs. And many of these programs teach money management and also entrepreneurship. I recently listened to an oral history of someone, a woman in Zimbabwe, who started out with $20 that she made by selling her clothes. And she used $20 to buy like one onion, a few tomatoes, and then some vegetables, maybe a little bit of meat. Uh, and she sold that and she made a 100% profit, $40. And then she reinvested that. And this was through the self-reliance programs at the church that kind of taught her some of the skills to do this kind of work? Uh, yes. So she started out with this kind of low-key business um, that she was just kind of running out of her home. But then um, eventually she took this self-reliance class called Starting and Growing My Business. And that's when she kind of developed these really professional methods of accounting, you know, where she would keep a record of everything going in, everything coming out. And from that point, it grew substantially to the point where she now employs multiple employees and she is called on to cater major events that, you know, feed hundreds of people in over a course of multiple days. Mm -hmm. So that self-reliance program was instrumental in helping her kind of take this kind of small informal thing and, and convert it into a much larger endeavor that became self-sustaining. Oh, I love that story so much. One of the things that also struck me about Marianne's story was the role of English in her story. Now, she joins the church not very fluent in English, and it was hard. Like in the beginning, it was really hard, especially when she had to give a talk in church in English and she was a new convert and didn't speak English very well at all. But she did eventually develop English facility. And this is a, a beneficial thing in a lot of ways, especially in countries where English is an official language. Maybe it was a formerly colonized British country or something. English is a real skill. So I was wondering, Melissa, if you can tell us your thoughts about the policy that the church has in many countries in Africa, which is that services are held in English. They're not held in the native language. They are held in English. Um, or the colonial language like French. or Yeah, or the colonial language like French, right. And so what are your thoughts about the pros and cons of this kind of policy? You are totally right that in a post-colonial situation where the colonial language is still associated with economic mobility, status, and competence, English is indeed a valuable skill. So I remember when I was living in Hong Kong and attending the Mandarin branch there, many of the women who were single mothers making middling wages really wanted their children to learn English at church. And they, would, they tried to send them to the English language primary a couple floors down in the same building. And ultimately, this didn't work because the kids really couldn't understand what was going on. And people should be able to hear the gospel in their own language. But still, every year in the primary program, we learned a song in English and, and the children performed a song in English and the Mandarin speaking parents just loved it. One major drawback to the English only policy or to the you know policy of using the colonial language 
is that in places where women aren't educated at the same rates as men, women are excluded from full participation in church callings and activities. They can't read the lesson manuals. They can't speak in the language of the service. So in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for example, where the colonial language and also the language of official business and education is French, I learned from my parents-in-law who are mission presidents there that primary and young women were often largely taught by men. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with non-gender segregated spaces, but in this case, it meant that the space for women's voices and leadership was smaller because church was in this colonial language, uh, not the local tribal languages that were people's native tongues. And if women hadn't been educated in that language, then they couldn't access that. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. So one thing about Marianne's oral history that I also really loved was the role of community and fellowship in her life after she joined the church. She mentioned that the best years of her life were in this tiny rented room where she had her three kids and she would gather the other Latter-day Saint kids and feed them and feed the missionaries. And she said that that was just such a great time in her life. And it seemed like the community just had a really profound impact on her. Though, as she mentions also in her oral history, retention is a massive problem. Now, Marianne found the community. She threw herself in. She didn't know how to be a leader in Relief Society, but she read those manuals and she figured it out on her feet. But a lot of women and a lot of global people in general after they convert, they aren't able to retain that affiliation. They do um, slip away. And so based on your knowledge of global Mormonism, what are the factors that lead to a lack of retention? What is the role of community in keeping global Latter-day Saints invested and active in the church? Well, that's like the million dollar question, right? <laughs> so these factors differ based on place. I'd say generally is Philip Jenkins and Jehu Hansels and most of the scholars in the recently published Paul Grave Handbook of Global Mormonism have pointed out the church's lack of accommodation to local cultural context is a major factor limiting conversion and retention around the world. So um, it's actually quite striking in this you know, handbook of global Mormonism. There's studies, quite, quite detailed studies of numerous countries, and they kind of speak univocally on this one issue of how much of what's taught as universal gospel culture from the Salt Lake City pulpit is likely to be identified as American culture by local members in Canada or Sweden or Belgium or the UK, Ireland, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, Ukraine, South Africa, and Nigeria. So it seems like there's a pretty broad consensus that this Americanness of the church and this lack of distinction, I guess, between what's a universal norm and what's an American norm uh, has been a significant limitation on conversion and retention. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. And in terms of community, which I think community, like uh, the community of Mormonism and being pulled into the Mormon community can be so powerful for some people, you know, if it actually happens upon conversion. I did notice that for some women in Botswana, it did work, um, though certainly for many people, like obviously they didn't stay active, so many of them. But for some people, the community was powerful. And as I was thinking about it, it seemed to me that like in certain places like Botswana that have trans like it's transitioned to a more modern economy within the last two or three generations. Before that, it was mainly like a lot of villages and you had these very strong networks within villages. But upon the advent of the modern economy, people would leave the villages and go to the capital city or to other big cities. And so there was a certain there, there's been a certain uprootedness in the lives of a lot of people in Botswana who have moved away from their traditional villages and are now in a capital city without those ties. And that sometimes the church can function as a place where you can get some of those connections, where you can get some of those standards and expectations that maybe were more readily available in a more village context. 
any last points you would like to make about this oral history, Melissa? Like any last things that jumped out at you or anything about Marianne's story that you'd like to comment on? One thing that comes up here is this issue of race, right? She says that her mother was angry with her. She said this is like a white person's church. And it was it was hard for her to join. It's interesting that she joined nevertheless. So as I just said, the church often doesn't accommodate local norms or particularities. And, and this is difficult and people just don't feel it. And then they leave because it just seems so foreign and American. At the same time, it's really striking how in the in many of the oral histories that I read, people from really different cultures will describe this transcendent experience where, um, for example, I'm thinking about this woman from Mongolia in the early days of the church there. She uh, was invited to go. She, she walked in to this Latter-day Saint meeting space. You know, in, in early days, it was you know completely foreign, tons of foreign missionaries, not a lot of local materials. The Book of Mormon was in Russian, all that stuff. Uh, she walks into this foreign American-ish, non-Mongolian cultural space. And she said when she walked in, she just felt this feeling of incredible peace. She said, it felt like when I was five, lying on my back, looking up at the trees in the middle of the forest. You know, that's like really striking to me. So, so, so often when you look at the kind of situation, like the race situation or the culture situation, you think, you know, who would join that church in this place? And yet people have these experiences. And despite these significant, you know, cultural hurdles, uh, some people really do find their place here, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. There is, despite these issues of culture and race, uh, certainly there can often be a transcendent experience that, that keeps people um, interested and devoted to the church. Let's transition to Sophia's story. Sophia from Veracruz, Mexico. And I want to issue a quick content warning because the following story does mention some details of a suicide attempt. Sophia, who we heard a little bit about at the beginning of the podcast, grew up in Veracruz, Mexico. Her childhood was very difficult. So difficult, in fact, that she left her home to work for another family at nine years of age in order to escape the abuse. I had a very sad childhood. My dad was killed when I was just a few months old. My mom got together with a man who hurt me a lot, physically, emotionally, and everything. When I was nine years old, I turned myself into a family so they would give me work, so I could have something to eat because there was a lot of poverty in my home. My mom had a lot of children from different marriages. That's how I grew up. Sophia was so traumatized by her experiences in her family home that she changed her name after she left. I wanted to disappear. I wanted to be another person. I didn't want to be the same one. She married at 16, hopeful about the future, but the marriage became abusive. She converted to the church as a young mother, desiring to change her life and find a path that would lead her out of her suffering. Teachings about being reunited with her baby son who passed away comforted her, and church classes and devotional practices helped her to become literate for the first time in her life. It was very hard for me to understand things. I never went to school. I never got an education. I learned to read with the Book of Mormon, with the Bible and scriptures. And I started writing this way too. I now realize I can stand up and give a talk, give my opinion on certain things, and talk and teach when it's expected of me as a leader in Relief Society. That helped me a lot within the church and outside of the church. I've been very blessed. Sophia described her life slowly improving. While her marriage was still difficult, 
Her husband converted but didn't change all his ways. She found her voice within her church community. It gave her a platform for speaking to audiences with a sense of authority and power. I share my testimony when the sisters have a very weak testimony, and they admire me a lot. I have very nice letters from the sister missionaries who were teaching the discussions to my brother so he could come out of the darkness. One of them, who is from Guatemala, told me, Sister, when I'm older, I want to be like you. Being a church member gave Sophia the chance to develop other skills. She worked hard to create some financial stability. I've been a fighter. I make and sell pies. I live across from a primary school, so I sell there. Before, when I was younger, I worked in homes as a housekeeper, but I would leave my children by themselves. So I decided to do sales, and with that, I've been able to subsist helping my husband. But it's been 13 years already that my husband became diabetic, and he doesn't work anymore. He depends on me and on my daughter, who is single, and she helps us. That's how I've been able to manage, by doing sales. I've learned to make pies at church. Sister Teresa taught us. It seems simple, making pies. But Relief Society is where Sophia and other Latter-day Saint women were learning skills they could turn into marketable ventures to support themselves and their families in times of need. Sophia's church involvement has given her certain resources and opportunities to improve her material conditions. It has also given her a platform from which to encourage her husband to change his behaviors and outlook. My husband didn't change 100%. Even being a member of the church, he drank. It took him a lot of work to change. The greatest challenges I've had have been to confront my husband with his weakness. I tell him, your testimony is very weak. I speak to him. I read him the scriptures. I tell him, if we are not right with the Lord, everything scares us. If you strengthen your testimony in Jesus Christ, you will have the courage to face everything. Just like I've had to deal with so much. I've learned about charity, the pure love of Christ through his leaders. I've received a lot of moral and spiritual help, and that has given me strength, and I confront life with happiness. He told me, without doubt, you being here brings us lots of blessings. You have a very strong power. I thank you for everything you have done for me. I have been the ungrateful person because I have not realized all the harm I have done to you. And now he asks me for forgiveness. That's how I've confronted my Goliath. Sophia has tackled other challenges as well. The wife of one of her sons recently fell into a deep depression and tried to take her own life. Sophia came to help the family in the aftermath, and it has been emotionally harrowing for everyone. My son has two children, a boy and a girl. But last year, his wife suffered a nerve attack and fell ill with depression and decided to commit suicide. She hung herself with a rope to leave this life. Right away, I went on June 15th. I was there for four months until I saw her improve. She was hurt around the neck and her eyesight was off. Her little girl saw her when this happened, but she ran out to let the neighbors know. One of them jumped over the fence and managed to bring her down. The doctor says that if it wouldn't have been for the girl, she would have died because she only needed a little bit more time to die. 
She is 43 years old. The girl is six years old. And she'd always ask me, Grandma, why do moms hang themselves with rope? I prayed a lot. And I finally said, No, my child, that is not what it was. What happened is that your mom went up to tie a rope on the ceiling and she got stuck on the rope. It's not because your mom wanted to do it. And that's how my granddaughter started to forget about it. But I don't know what kind of damage this will cause her with time because they have not taken her to see a psychologist. Sophia's other son has recently experienced a devastating divorce, and it has been painful for Sophia to see her son's grief. I've gone through lots of trials, lots of things as of late, like my son's divorce, who is a returned missionary. He was a bishop. He has a daughter and two sons. That has been the biggest pain I felt these past days. It hurts to see my son alone, sad, devastated. He is seeing a psychologist because he can't accept this and doesn't know why it happened. It is very painful for a mother because we want the best for our children. I've gone through trials, but I know that God will not send me a trial I cannot bear. I find refuge in the scriptures. There is a scripture I like a lot that says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I lean on the gospel, which is the only best thing for me. Oral history interviews give people like Sophia some space to talk about difficult things like this. They also offer space to reflect on pride and joy. I feel proud of myself because in spite of all of the obstacles I've had since I was born, I've been able to move forward, even having no money. I give of my time and my talents, and I feel proud because I can help others. I organize myself to have spare time. That's what I am proud of. I've been healed from all the things I've gone through. They don't hurt me. The Savior washed them away. One day, my son told me, How can you be so loving? How can you have the courage to forgive and have time for everyone? President Dieter F. Urgdorf says, We have to follow Jesus Christ's footsteps. Listen, teach, and put it into practice. The important thing is to put it into practice. Those are the things I am proud of. Sophia's story was one of the most striking to me when I was doing oral histories in Mexico. And one of the things that emerged in her story, but also in a number of other women's stories, was the role the Relief Society played in teaching women skills that they would then entrepreneur into businesses or in some ways, like they would use these skills to transform their lives. And it was just so striking to me that it was homemaking. Of course, I'm talking like way back in the 1980s when they called it homemaking. But yeah, these homemaking classes, which I had never considered particularly, in my experience, revolutionary or life-changing, for these women, they could be revolutionary and they could be life-changing. And that was the case for Sophia, who learned to make pies at Relief Society and then turned that into a small business that gave her more flexibility because that's what she was looking for. Melissa, what are your thoughts about the role of Relief Society in various global locations that you're familiar with? How has the Relief Society functioned in places you've been or studied? 
And have you seen a similar kind of impact or different kind of impact? I think Relief Society is around the world is significant in two major ways. Uh, the first is that it provides networks of women, right? It's a network and we'll have access to each other. And these networks help women do what they want to do. I remember there's a story of Germany in the 1920s, late 1920s, early 1930s, that same kind of depression era downturn that eventually led to the rise of the Nazi party because the economic conditions were so bad. And during that time, the women stuck together. They would have working hours that would, um, they would mostly knit socks. They would sell the socks and they would use the profit to help sisters who were in need or families who were in need. And it, it was, you know, these skills that they had, the knitting skills uh, eventually, which they kind of developed in these working hours in the Second World War became life-saving because in the Second World War, there was no food. You know, everything was just, the economy was completely shut down and money was worthless. What, what was necessary was food. And so um, many women used their knitting skills to knit sweaters and, and they would trade these they would barter, you know, a sweater for a thing of eggs or for a sack of flour um, or socks for something else. And, and they, they literally saved their families' lives because they had actual practical skills that were really needed. So that's the first thing um, that provides networks of women with these you know, access to each other. And the second thing is that Relief Society provides a space for women's authority and women's sharing of experiences, a way where women's experiences are, are more valued, perhaps, than they would be in, in the general spaces in that society. And that's pretty valuable too. So for example, in Hong Kong, I saw this in uh, Filipina and Indonesian domestic workers who in some ways are the lowest of the low in the kind of Hong Kong caste system, often mistreated, often abused, sometimes in conditions of servitude where they basically can't afford to return home because of the predatory contracts that they're in. So there's not a lot of space for Filipina and Indonesian domestic workers in, in Hong Kong society. And you can see this in the fact that on Saturdays and Sundays, when many of these workers have a day off, their one day off per week, they will uh, spread out newspapers in the public parks, just not on the ground in the pathways in the public parks or on the bridges. And that's like the space, the, the little tiny space they have is this newspaper that they've spread out. But within the church, the, the Latter-day Saint Filipina and Indonesian domestic workers on their day off, they pack this full of their church services, as well as the things they have to do, as well as they're hanging out. So they have sacrament meeting, institute, family home evening, relief society, all like back to back in this nice, within the chapels of the church. So in the Wan Chai building, where there's air conditioning and bathrooms and places to warm food, and they can eat, they can feed each other, they bring food to share, they sing songs, they, they serve in their callings. Many of them are clerks, keeping track of the you know, ward's finances, which is something that doesn't happen in other wards. So it's a pretty unique space. And, and what I saw there is that Relief Society and the church structure more generally provided these women with a safe space, a safe where they could be free to enjoy themselves, to recreate, to have a place that, where, they, where they felt like they belonged a place where they had authority that did not exist outside the church or in society at, at large. And I'm just struck by that image where it gave them like it actually gave them a physical space. These are women that did not have a like a physical space to go to other than their place of work. And so the church actually gave them space to gather, to congregate, 
to socialize, to take all their church classes. Like it sounds like it was incredibly transformative for these domestic workers. I know Stacey Lee Ford has a wonderful article that talks about Filipina domestic workers in Hong Kong and and the way they navigate their lives and the role the church plays in their lives. So yeah, thank you, Melissa, for your reflections. I love the way you broke that down in terms of what Relief Society can do for women. I love your point about the networks and the transference of knowledge and skills that can happen in these networks. And that's certainly what came out in a lot of these Mexican oral histories. I was struck by another woman's oral history from Mexico where her husband was laid off and they were in real financial trouble. And she realized, like, I have to do something to help my family. She had been a stay-at-home mom and she knew this was the time that she had to do something to help. And she remembered that a few years ago, she had taken a class in a Relief Society meeting, like a homemaking meeting, a class on how to work with soy products. And so she learned in this class how to make soy milk and other products. And in that moment of dire financial need, she realized I can entrepreneur that knowledge into a small business and I can help keep my family afloat. And that's what she did. And it was a great thing in her life. And when she reflected on this experience in her oral history, she talked about how Grateful she was to belong to a church that taught her how to do things. And she says that people always ask her, like, where did you learn how to work with soy? And she says, she always says, I learned it at my church. And she's like, this was a moment of, of real pride for her that she belonged to, to a church that would teach her these kinds of skills. Another thing that really jumped out at me with Sophia's oral history was this theme that arose when she talked about the dynamics with her husband. Now, she points to, or maybe her oral history points to this interesting theme that does come out in many oral histories with global women, which is the way that church teachings can contribute to what scholars might call the domestication of men, uh, which means men turning away from alcohol, from adultery, from violence, and toward the home where they devote their energies and their resources in a productive way. Um, Elizabeth Brusco talks about this in her study of Colombian evangelicals. Now, Sophia, her husband did not entirely change, even after he was baptized. But the church teachings on benevolent masculinity, sobriety, and other things like this really did give her a platform to critique him and to encourage him to stay away from alcohol and violence and so forth. I think this is one really powerful way that the church can sometimes help women improve their lives, which is by encouraging the men to be more proactive and benevolent in the family. And so I just wanted to throw this out at you, Melissa. Do you have any thoughts on this issue of the domestication of men and the role Mormonism can play in it? Have you seen this theme come up in your own work or in your own experience with global Mormonism? Absolutely. I mean, one thing that, as you mentioned, you know, Mormons aren't the only group of Christians who are kind of involved in this phenomenon the domestication of men or whatever you want to call it. However, the fact that the church has a lay priesthood, which kind of sucks men into service and subjects them to some forms of public scrutiny is certainly a kind of additional element, I guess, within this larger phenomena of Christian domestication of men in cultures where, where women don't have a lot of status. I noted that church membership, you could call it colonial in some ways because it imports a kind of different set of cultural expectations for marriage or for relationships between men and women. This can be good and bad, as we know. But one thing we can say about where the church's gender ideologies fit on the spectrum is that this varies drastically depending on where you are. So in North America, in you know Northern Western Europe, the church can be you know way to the right. It can be kind of seen as reactionary. But in other places, those same positions are way to the left and can be seen as kind of 
super progressive or, or radical even. So this is this is pretty interesting. I mean, I've never really thought about the family proclamation as a kind of emancipatory women's lib kind of document. But, you know, in the context of the Democratic Republic of the Congo or something like that, it is actually quite significant, you know, the statement that men and women are equal partners. Just, just that is pretty significant. And I noted, for example, in, in one local history that I was reading prepared by a stake in Uganda, they said one of their significant events for that year was a couples conference where you went with your spouse and talked about marriage relationships and, you know, and proper roles and behaviors for married couples. Now, again, you could see this is kind of colonials importing these, you know, Western ideas. At the same time, you know, they highlighted it themselves. They said, this is what we're working on and this is what we like and we are all working on this. So, so I don't think you can completely play the cultural colonialism card. I think we have to give people credit wherever they are for seeing ideas that are valuable to them or that are helpful. Mm-hmm. This reminds me very much of the way Mercy Odiyoye, who is a theologian from Africa, I believe from Ghana, she talked about this dynamic. Is this a colonial imposition to be pressing for more of an equal partnership marriage within Mormonism? Like that's really what the church, you know, over obviously things have evolved over time. But right now, certainly the rhetoric really encourages equal partnership marriage, even as there are vestiges of, of patriarchal discourse, for sure. But with the women I talk to around the world in various locations like Botswana and Mexico, and also some I've read about in South Africa as well, they do see the gender norms that are being encouraged in terms of equal partnership. They, they see that very liberating. Like this is something they want. They want a companionate marriage. They want a loving marriage. They want an affectionate marriage. They want one where they are heard and listened to and respected. It's also appealing to have a husband that will contribute financially to the family. Like this is all very appealing to them. And often the women would describe this as not a traditionally African marriage. A traditionally African marriage was more distant, often separate finances, less equal. And so they pretty much found to a woman the church's teachings on marriage in terms of equal partnership and loving, benevolent relationships. Very, very appealing. So I do. It is like such an interesting balance. Like, is this a colonial imposition? Because, yes, these are kind of more Western marital norms. But on the other hand, it's what the women wanted. And this theologian that I just referenced a minute ago talks about how in her vision of how to do theology, you grasp the things from your own heritage and your own tradition that are wonderful and you lift them up and you hold on to them tight. But when there are things in your own tradition or your own background or heritage that are not empowering to women, that are not uplifting to women, well, then it's time to let those go. And so it seems like, yeah, there are people all over, theologians, scholars grappling with this question of colonial imposition and when it comes to these kinds of norms. But certainly with the Mormon women I talked to, this was one where they would not say this is a colonial imposition. They would say, this is what I actually want. Like, this is what I want. This is empowering to me. And this is good. So thank you for your reflections on that. Now, Sophia's story, to go back to her, you know, she has gone through some heavy things in her life, very heavy things. Now, she did not achieve the domestication of men, you know, ideal exactly with her husband because he kind of retained these behaviors for quite a long time. But what did come out to me in many of these oral histories with Mexican women is that the next generation of men, their sons, often did grasp onto these kinds of behavior norms in terms of fidelity and sobriety and devotion to their wives and so forth. So that is one interesting thing that you might not get the domestication of men immediately upon conversion, but possibly in the next generation, these things can improve for women. 
the last thing I wanted to ask you, Melissa, was about resources that Mormonism has, either theological or practical resources that can help people deal with and get through the challenges of their lives. Because as we see, Sophia's life was so hard and there were so many challenges. Even after her conversion, she goes through challenge after challenge. But even as she went through challenge after challenge, she had resources within her to deal with these challenges. And I think Mormonism helped her to develop some of those resources. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out to you, what you thought about the kinds of impactful resources Mormonism can give people when they deal with challenges. Well, I guess I would say two things. Number one, this theology that life is characterized by opposition and by struggle. And that's just kind of the nature of life. Uh, It's supposed to be a test. It's supposed to be difficult. So if horrible things happen to you, you don't have to ask necessarily why me. You can ultimately say, well, I guess life is supposed to be hard. And so how am I going to equip myself in the middle of this challenge? One thing that I think Mormonism does as well is it part of this kind of theology of overcoming challenges is the idea of the value of hard work, that if you have something horrible happen to you and you fight through it and you make a ton of sacrifices those things will be consecrated as the Latter-day Saints say it for your kind of ultimate spiritual benefit. Um, The idea that this energy that we expend is somehow like conserved in an eternal sense. And so that's like a kind of theological framework, which is, which is really helpful. I mean, it's certainly been helpful for me and I've seen be helpful for people all around the world who've dealt with some really difficult things. And then the second thing I'd say is that the Latter-day Saints are resources to each other. They're a network of people. You know them really well. You know what they tend to say. You know what they do. You have a relationship with them. And and these are actually quite significant, I think, especially in our 21st century world where people increasingly live their lives online or with these kind of uh, cyber communities, with these communities that are not face-to-face. What the Latter-day Saint resources provide is our face-to-face relationships where you know actual people. This is actually quite valuable. It's valuable in a kind of political sense because so often nowadays people increasingly live in these echo chambers where where you can just choose the society of people who think like you and who like what you say. But in a Latter-day Saint community, that's not necessarily the case. And that's an incredibly valuable resource, not only to people who are trying to follow Jesus. You You need to have enemies to love. You need to have burdens to carry for other people. And it's also a valuable resource for society in general. Well, this was amazing. I feel so privileged to have you as a conversation partner on this podcast. And I think all the listeners are also incredibly privileged to be listening to your insights and your stories. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. One final word of thanks to Shiloh Logan for the many hours he put into editing this episode. A Claremont Graduate University Mormon Studies podcast. Hi, this is Caroline Klein, host of This Global Latter-day Life. If you're enjoying the kind of stories you're hearing from Latter-day Saint women around the world on this show, you'll also enjoy my new book. It's called Mormon Women at the Crossroads, and it's filled with compelling stories like the ones you've been hearing on This Global Latter-day Life. Order a copy at the University of Illinois Press website, on Amazon.com, or from your favorite local book retailer. Mormon Women at the Crossroads by Caroline Klein. This Global Latter-day Life is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. 
If you enjoyed this episode, check out the podcast, It Last She Said It, which explores interesting and sometimes challenging issues and experiences related to the lives of Latter-day Saint women.